electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, debating the next round of stimulus. Is it the markets versus the middle class? Operation Hope's John Hope Bryant and Shark Tank co-host Kevin O'Leary. We can't just abandon the middle class businesses employing half of this country and expect this story to come out well because we're all in this thing together. I don't want to spend any more money guessing on winners and losers because Congress can't. There's nobody that can't. Only the market can. Billionaire investor, philanthropist, and Quicken Loans founder Dan Gilbert on his company's IPO and the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy is the strongest economy in the world, and it always comes back. Those stories, plus a record milestone for the Nasdaq and a familiar refrain from Bernie Sanders. It's Thursday, August 6th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Scott Wapner. Joe is off today, but guys, it's good to see both of you. It's nice to see you. It's nice to be, by the way, I should mention, back back (laughs) in the city at the NASDAQ. Um, This is my first uh, First sojourn to return. First up on today's podcast, a major milestone for the NASDAQ. On Thursday, the index briefly crossed 11,000 for the first time ever. The Nasdaq then closed out the day just a hair below that 11K milestone, a record high. That's the index's sixth record close in a row. So far, the Nasdaq has clocked a record close 31 times in 2020. It's a remarkable run for the index, especially considering what a hit it took, like the rest of the stock market, back in March. Clearly, the Nasdaq has come back with ferocity. It's gained about 23% this year alone. The S&P 500 and the Dow Jones indices have each clocked four-day winning streaks. And the S&P is now mere percentage points away from its own 2020 highs. Of course, record highs in the marketplace seem at odds with the troubles we're seeing in the real economy. Small and medium businesses are shuttered, big retailers bankrupt, and individuals and entrepreneurs are anxiously awaiting more government relief. According to some, as you'll hear, the disconnect is in part due to the Federal Reserve's unprecedented actions throughout the pandemic, and investor confidence that the Fed will continue to support the markets. One former presidential candidate is calling for billionaires to step up for the real economy. Here's Becky Quick. Senator Bernie Sanders, he is now renewing his call for a crackdown on billionaires. This is what he tweeted last night. I will be introducing legislation tomorrow, meaning today, to tax the obscene wealth gains billionaires have made during the public health crisis. The senator tweeted a thread explaining his proposal, saying, while over 30 million Americans have seen their $600 a week in unemployment benefits expire, emergency actions taken by the Federal Reserve to prop up the stock market have meant that 467 billionaires saw their wealth go up by over $730 billion since the pandemic began. While Amazon is denying paid sick leave, hazard pay, and personal protective equipment to 450,000 of its workers, Jeff Bezos has increased his wealth by over $70 billion. 
Amazon shares are up more than 70% year-to-date. You can see this morning down by about $12. Senator Sanders also calls out Walmart's Walton family, Tesla's Elon Musk, and Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg for making billions of dollars during the pandemic and then trying to juxtapose that with what they've done for some of their workers along the way. He then said, by taxing 60% of the wealth gains made by just 467 billionaires during this pandemic, we could guarantee health care as a right for an entire year. And billionaires would still be able to pocket over $310 billion in gains during the worst downturn since the Great Depression. Guys, this really um, is open season once again. And, and as we're into that political season, as things are heating up there, you can bet there is going to be more rhetoric like this and more actions that are taken. I doubt there's anything that comes of this legislation when he brings it today. But it is kind of echoing a sentiment that, that runs through a major part of the population. But I think there's going to be a big question when the this pandemic's is, over, yeah. how, to ta- how, to tax, how to tax people. And if we're on, quote unquote, war footing, how we're going to pay for, for all that we've done. We have put one of the greatest sort of uh, corporate insurance policies together. And the beneficiaries of those have been uh, the taxpayer, not the taxpayer, rather, but the shareholders. Um, we've talked a lot about the idea that employees have given up a lot during this period, uh, oftentimes showing up at a, a work, we just showed an image of Jeff Bezos going to work for Amazon, going to work for Walmart, and that's been their contribution to this country during this wartime, if you want to call it a wartime. You know, I've always said I've been blessed, and I, I think uh, a lot of us have been blessed during this period to be able to both work from home uh, and, and to be of means, if you will. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a billionaire, so I can't speak to it, but um, I, I wouldn't argue against higher taxes uh, to, pay for, to pay as a, an offset for some of this as, quote unquote, a contribution, if you will, to, uh, to the country in the same way that uh, so many uh, frontline workers have contributed uh, during this period. One man's view. Yeah. Look, the, higher taxes this, are coming for this, wealthier this, people. This, I think that's inevitable. We're still talking about trillions of more dollars coming out. And that is money that is going to be, have to be paid back at some point. Um, but one thing Sanders posts in his tweets, his thread, I don't think takes into account is what companies like Walmart have done during this pandemic. They have increased pay um, and they've done that. By the way, Doug McMillan's been doing that for years, raising the base pay there, making sure there are additional benefits that come in. Um, I, I see his point. I see his point, And it is a valid point that because of the actions of the Federal Reserve, by studying things, the wealthiest people have gotten wealthier. And, and that is going to be something that politicians are look, focusing on no matter how, which way the election goes. They're going to have to find a way to come up to repay the money that's been spent during this. This, this to me, goes to the very heart of the issue that we've been talking about since the market rebounded from, from March. And that is this great disconnect in the divide between Wall Street and Main Street. And when Main Street looks at their televisions and they, they turn on CNBC and they see the fact that we're talking about the Nasdaq's at 11,000 and the Dow has recovered in the manner in, in which it has, you still have this incredible divide in this country, this um, you know, horrible income gap and income inequality that the market has been able to surge back while we're having a discussion this morning about Washington not being able to agree on a stimulus package and people whose benefits are, are running out, wondering where their next meals are going to come from. And that's this incredible disconnect. And Bernie Sanders is speaking exactly to the people who say it's absurd that the stock market is where it is when the real economy uh, is, is still in the tank. Uh, I'd also well, add, and by the you, way, part of the reason the, the market has continued to climb is because you hear about these layoffs that are, that right. are coming on a daily basis. 
Uh, I, companies are cutting back. That's going to help their margins, and they're going to perform better. Right. I, I'd also add, by the way, companies like Walmart and Amazon and so many of their employees and those companies stepped up, as you said, Becky, but they were beneficiaries of government policy uh, beyond the Fed, which is to say that in so many parts of the country, you know, states were locked down. Small businesses were told, you, you, have, to, you have to be shut. So we effectively advantaged an Amazon. We advantaged a Walmart over yeah. everybody else. Yes, they, they stepped up to the plate and they served. But then there's a question of the economics of it. And this goes to how, therefore, in some respects, you'd say Walmart and Amazon should be supporting the small businesses that weren't able to work during this period if we were thinking about it in that context. Next on Squawk Pod, debating the next round of stimulus. What if after six months, people have figured out they'd rather watch James Bond on their home screen or their tablet, and they don't want to go to theaters anymore? Why should I, as a taxpayer, have to decide whether that theater change should stay in business or not? A lively conversation between John Hope Bryant and Kevin O'Leary, right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Scott Wapner. Main Street is eyeing Washington as lawmakers debate the next round of pandemic relief. The goal in D.C. is to reach a decision on another stimulus package by Friday. That's tomorrow. But so far, issues like eviction protections and unemployment benefits have proven difficult for compromise. Both sides of the aisle agree that eligible individuals should receive a second stimulus payment for up to $1,200. But Congress is sharply divided on how to replace the weekly $600 boost to unemployment benefits. Without that boost, aid recipients in some states are left with 10 or even as little as $5 a week. Meanwhile, a group of CEOs led by former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz are calling for immediate aid for small businesses. Schultz joined Squawk Box on Tuesday, making his case. It is no longer a crisis. This is a five-alarm emergency in which I believe, and I think the 100 CEOs who signed this letter in support of the Restart Act believes that all roads should lead to small business relief in any stimulus package that Congress approves. Check out Tuesday's Squawk Pod for that full interview. This morning on our TV broadcast, we continued that stimulus debate with Operation Hope Chairman and CEO John Hope Bryant and Kevin O'Leary, Chairman at O'Shares ETFs, Shark Tank co-host and CNBC contributor. Here's Becky. Kevin, I want to start with you. In terms of what's being proposed right now, in terms of what's being put out there, in terms of this plan uh, to potentially make loans to small businesses that could be forgiven, what Howard Schultz was talking about, what do you think? Uh, I, I totally disagree. I, I think, first of all, Howard is, is an advocate of small business, and I appreciate that. And he's a rock star amongst the entrepreneurial community for caring about employees. It's always been part of his mantra and what he did in building Starbucks. But when we started this PPP program months and months and months ago, there was a lot we didn't know that we know now. And the American economy is going through a revolution, a digital transformation. There are going to be many, many winners and many, many losers. 
And at the end of the day, the one thing John and I can agree on is during this transition, we're going to displace a lot of employees, a lot of workers. We should support them, but let the actual change, this dynamic change occur, happen on its own and let the market be the market. I am, as you know, a huge advocate of small business. I have over 50 companies, small businesses that are private I've invested in. At least 20 to 25% of them are going to fail because the world has changed on them. Consumers have changed. The way they buy things have changed. Where they go has changed. And we don't yet know what the world looks like on the other side of this pandemic. Assuming it's going back to what it was is an incorrect assumption because many things are going to be more efficient. And we can't pick the winners and losers anymore. That's what's changed in my mind over the last five months. I am a huge advocate for giving somewhere between $400 and $450 to employees, extending the unemployment, and then letting the market do price discovery on what it should fund and what it shouldn't. There's so many businesses that got money in the first PPP that shouldn't have got it at all because they are essentially zombie companies. They will never be successful. They will never be liquid. The world has changed on them. Why should I as a taxpayer fund that? Why not let the private markets come and support those that deserve it and let the others die as they do and should because those assets will go through bankruptcy and be redeployed efficiently. I don't want to spend any more money guessing on winners and losers because Congress can't. There's nobody that can. Only the market can. And John knows that and he has to admit that no one can pick winners and losers. Why should taxpayers be forced into these crammed down fundings? Makes no sense at all to me. And I'm an advocate for small business. Mm-hmm. John, your response? Uh, I'm speechless. Um, first of all, I, I have enormous respect for Kevin um, and what he's accomplished. I, I find it interesting, I wasn't going to mention it, but 10% of the businesses that he started got PPP. I mean, five of his own companies three months ago got PPP loans. Uh, it, it is, we, we, you can't just say we want uh, uh, affirmative action for rich people. And everybody else is on your own. That is not the way this works. You can't. We are re- we are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic here. The ship is, the ship is sinking, and we're all picking drapes. <laughs> the reality is that even the, the the Starbucks CEO and the hundred CEOs that went with them have the right message. That's the Woodruff uh, era CEO message of of the '60s that I mentioned, where Coca Cola leaned in to tell the Atlanta business community to do the right thing when they didn't want to honor Dr. King. Atlanta is now the biggest economy in the South, the only international city in the South. Uh, The U.S. came out of World War II, Becky, because of the government and its stimulus, which went to the private sector, which created the Marshall Plan, which allowed George Marshall, which allows the Rebuild Europe, which is now a huge trading partner, and helped us to aid, hello, uh, the average white middle-class man, to get as much education as he could thro- shove down his throat, an apprenticeship for a new job, that's government support, and a, and a, and a mortgage for a new home. That was the birth of the middle class. Uh, and that is that became, made us a global leader in the world. So yes, the private sector should lead, and the private sector should should pick winners. But at the moment, you know, we, we, we all need a little bit of a rich uncle to help us through this. And for most of, on Wall Street, it's the Fed window, okay? So we, we can't just abandon the middle class business is employing half of this country, half of this country, and expect this story to come out well because those businesses and the average person is driving the economy, which is driving big business. We're all in this thing together. 
John, the, one, the couple of things I will say is Kevin mentioned that he thinks a quarter of the companies that, that he has, the small businesses, will probably go under. So he's not advocating for that. And he is advocating for making sure that there are still an extension of the unemployment benefits to make sure that that gets through to the people. Um, what happens if the world has changed? Yeah, but we're, we're having the wrong conversation. My friend Kevin is having a market conversation. I'm having a conversation about, about us being at war. I think America's at war with the virus. <laughs> I think you, 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 when you're at war, you don't fight skirmishes. You, your solution has, has to be bigger than your problem. Let's keep in mind, the government told us all to shut down. We're not talking about lazy people here. We're not talking about lazy small businesses. We're talking about people who worked their tails off, did everything right. A virus attacked us, and we basically 2020 is on pause. Like, pull out your Pinterest board, pull out your dream board. The government's going to have to put in a stopgap to get us through 2020 so that there is an economy to come back to. Mr. Schultz was right. This is a five-alarm fire. If we don't solve this, there'll be no argument to have. We've got to solve this one thing. You've got to save the economy. <clears throat> the economy is driven by consumer spending, 70%, and, uh, and employment by small business is a little-known fact. You cannot just say, let them fail. Because the people who are going to fail are the ones who are buying the products of the companies and CEOs who are watching this product, this this this, uh, this program, and the ones who are, by the way, paying taxes. This, by the way, Kevin, I agree with you on one thing. We should be prudent about how we use our tax money. We are in total agreement. We, we agree on several things. This is a great way to use tax money. <laughs> this is a fabulous way to use tax money to, to undergird. The economy in a one in 150 year war. I have no problem with helping people. I just don't want to breed mediocrity and inefficiency into an economy that can be extremely dynamic if allowed to go and get price discovery on its own. The American economy is an extremely powerful beast, and it has to be let to work and figure out on its own what should work and what shouldn't. Let me give you an example. Let's make it easy for people to understand. Let's say a, a theater chain, a movie theater chain, which employs maybe a thousand people, is asking for four or five million dollars to stay open because they want to wait until there's a therapeutic or a vaccine so people will gather back in theaters. What if after six months people have figured out they'd rather watch James Bond on their home screen or their tablet and they don't want to go to theaters anymore? Why should I as a taxpayer have to decide whether that theater chain should stay in business or not. Why not let the market redeploy those buildings after bankruptcy into maybe data centers, maybe into cloud kitchens, maybe into pick and pack robotic inventory locations that the economy actually needs. It may never need those theater seats anymore. The world has changed, John. You got to admit that. Let's support the thousand employees during this transition and help them find jobs in the pick and pack robotic facility or the cloud kitchen or whatever the economy is going to do. It's digitizing, but it sickens me to see money given to companies that are the walking dead. Right. When you know if we just let the price discovery occur, hey, we'll come out of this mess I, with a far more efficient and a more dynamic and very profitable economy. The John, government can't John, choose winners. They I wanna, can't I choose winners. I want to jump in and, and, and ask Kevin another question, but John, I know you got a response. Yeah, so I do. I think we're having two different conversations. I really do understand that now. Kevin's having a conversation about the investor economy. And I have a lot of wealthy friends 
who told me they got PPP, and they really shouldn't have. Their companies were doing okay, and they got more padding for their balance sheet to get through this. I'm talking about the barbershop owner. I'm talking about the daycare who's got three employees who had 14 days of cash before this thing even hit. They were in a crisis before the crisis ever hit. When, when mainstream America has a headache, black folks have pneumonia. <laughs> but we're all sick. We're talk, I'm talking about 96% of all black businesses that don't have an employee, Kevin. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the, the vast majority of businesses in this country who have one to four, one to 100 employees who, don't, who, did, who had 14 to 21 days of cash before this hit. You've got to back them. You've got to support them. That is the individual you're talking about. It's just an individual with a business name attached to it. So we are not in disagreement about the investor economy. That is emotionally detached. Uh, let the, the uh, capital find its own level. I get it. I'm talking about the heart of this country. And if we lose the heart of this country, we lose this country. We're not a country, Kevin. We're an idea. And we've got to back that idea with everything we've got because we need that confidence to pull through the underside so that we can create new Starbucks and new Microsofts and new Apples and new U's and hey, new Ke me. Hey, hey, Kevin, let me ask you this. Uh, we were talking the last hour. Bernie Sanders has a new plan today to tax billionaires that he argues have benefited during this period. People of means, people who had wealth before and had money in the market and owned assets in many cases, if you were an Amazon shareholder, for example, or Jeff Bezos, you were a beneficiary in part because the government, by the way, helped you oftentimes at the expense of small businesses. Do you think that, that there should be higher taxes on the wealthy to pay for all of this, to pay for the unemployment insurance of the people who are ultimately actually going to be buying your products or not? There has been a, a remarkable corporate socialism on one end going on, and there's a big push to spend even more money, but nobody's talking about who should pay for it. Yeah, it's, it's, listen, Andrew, you, you've, you've stayed on this theme throughout this entire pandemic. Uh, there's always attempts to change capitalism in times of stress. There's always there's a better way to go. There's a different system. That's never been the case in 200 years. Now, if you want to tax the rich into oblivion, that's fine. What will happen is they will go and pursue other opportunities somewhere else. It's a very competitive world out there. I'm not against taxing people and I'm not against being taxed. But the point is we have to be competitive. We need a nation that can compete with everybody else, and specifically China and other Asian countries where taxes are lower and capital flows. America has always been the place to bring your idea and make it happen, not because it was the highest tax place, because it was the place where the market existed and entrepreneurs were celebrated and supported, and they created this economy. Now, I like Bernie Sanders. I like all of his, his ideas, but the market has made a decision. It said, look, at the end of the day, let America remain America, as far as I'm concerned. And the, by the way, Andrew, if you took all the money away from all the wealthy people, defining wealth any way you want, it doesn't solve the problem. They I don't, don't have I enough don't money. Take, I don't want to take people's wealth. I'm just trying to figure out the balanced way to figure out a way to fund what's happened here. Because what we have done in the past five months is we've completely socialized the losses you, you, don't want, you as a taxpayer just said you don't want to pay uh, more money to pick the, the, the winners and the losers. And we've profitized the gains. And, uh, and therefore, we've got to figure out sort of how to, how to re-manage re that, maybe. Guys, I, we, we let Kevin get the first word. I want John to get a very quick last word before we go, too. John, your thought on this? Very quickly. I would love to pay more taxes for internships for all, for apprenticeships for all, for financial literacy for education for all, for K-through college education for all. 
for the retraining of workers for the new economy. I'd love to pay more taxes for that because it's going to come back in more GDP. We're thinking we're having the wrong conversation. You want to save capitalism? Upgrade it. John, Kevin, I want to thank you guys so much. I, I hope we can do this again because this is a, a really good, thoughtful conversation. And I think it's better than some of the conversations we're hearing out of Washington right now. Hopefully they are listening. But thank you both. And we'll see you both soon. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Quicken Loans parent company IPOs today. CEO Jay Farner joins founder, billionaire, and philanthropist Dan Gilbert ahead of the big debut. Client service, great technology. That's the, those are the ingredients that are going to move you forward. And, and that's what we'll keep doing, and we'll keep grabbing market share. Picture this. It's Saturday morning, and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Our final story on today's podcast, Rocket Companies. The parent company of mortgage lender Quicken Loans debuts today on the New York Stock Exchange after pricing at $18 a share on Thursday evening. Jay Farner, CEO of Rocket Companies, joined our TV broadcast ahead of the listing, and he was joined by Rocket Companies chairman and founder, Dan Gilbert. Gilbert is a billionaire investor and philanthropist and the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Last year, Gilbert suffered a stroke, and this is his first CNBC interview since his recovery. Here's Becky Quick. Gentlemen, welcome to both of you on a big day. Dan, I just have to say, having not seen you or gotten to talk to you in the last year plus since your stroke, I'm just so glad to see you today, and I just wonder how you're doing. Thanks for, thanks for being well, here. How well, are thank you? thank you. I'm, I'm doing a lot better because of the, the people that are around me helping me every day. So it's uh, been quite an experience and quite a challenge I mean, it happens instantaneously to you. You know, you're living your life, and then one day, it happens, and your life is completely changed. And so, you know, there's a 1.5 million strokes in the U.S. every year. Not a lot of people talk about strokes. Talk a lot about cancer, a lot about heart attacks and stuff, but stroke is not really talked about. But it hits more people than almost anything. I'm just grateful to see you're doing well. And, and well, I have to say, you. this company, I've always thought of this company as your baby. You started it 35 years ago. You grew it yep. into this phenomenal thing. And I was really surprised when I heard that you were going to go ahead and do an IPO because I, I wondered what you're missing. Is it the quarterly calls with investors you're looking forward to? Why, why right. are you doing this? Well, Jay gets to handle all that, <laughs> so I can't speak to that. But uh, I will say that um, we just thought it was, uh, it was the right move for our company at this time. You know, 35 years in, got thousands of people now working for the company, and, and we can, they all are stockholders now, which is a great thing, something we've always wanted to do. That's hard to do in a sub-S corporation, private company situation. 
but you can do it in a public. So we want to use our stock as currency and potentially acquire more fintech organizations and put them in the mold. So there's you know, better access to the capital markets. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. You probably know them all yourself, I'm sure. But uh, we're excited about it. And if I could borrow a line from Jeff Bezos, we, we're in a get-rich-slow scheme here. 35, 35 years. years <laughs> in. 35 years. Yeah. I can't take credit for that line because I heard him say that somewhere. <laughs> That's a good line, and it's definitely applicable here. And, and, and Jay, you're going to get the tough questions on this this morning. You, you are the sure. CEO. You're the ones who's, who's going to be running things. Um, the pricing came in below what had been anticipated, $18 versus the 20 to $22 billion, or 20 to $22 dollars a share. And you're looking at fewer shares, 100 million versus the 150 that, that had been talked about earlier. That brings the valuation down from at the high end, maybe $3.3 billion down to $1.8 billion. What, what happened? Why, why do you think the cooler reception then had it initially been anticipated? Well, I would say that we're pretty excited about where we're at here. And as you know, this is an art more than a science. And so as we talk to our bankers and so forth, we uh, put uh, our best foot forward. Uh, and probably the most important thing, as Dan uh, discussed, we've got 35 years in the business, so uh, we're more focused on the next five, 10 years than uh, any given moment in time. And so the investor base uh, for our, our opening was probably the most important thing, and so we focused on that versus uh, selling as many shares as we possibly could. So I think we're in great shape and more excited than ever about the future. Think about the momentum we've got, record quarters, record profitability, uh, record growth. Uh, so uh, this is a great, great uh, starting point. Like Dan just pointed out, we're close to 9% market share, up from just 5% a few short years ago. So a lot of positive things happening. And uh, as he always reminds me, this is a uh, marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, you guys are now the large, largest mortgage lender in the United States, uh, eclipsing Wells Fargo, who used to be leading the way, J.P. Morgan, other big names that we know. Um, and that's incredibly impressive. I think some of the questions that have been raised is, look, it's a, a cyclical business. And it's been so hot right now. Your revenue for 2019 was like $5.1 billion. But is there a point where it starts to look like a, like a less rosy business because interest rates are already so low, probably everybody on the planet's trying to refinance right now. Is there a point when that turns and what do you do then? Well, great question. Dan and I were talking about this. There's nearly $11 trillion worth of mortgages out there that are in the money, meaning ready to refinance. I think the capacity for the uh, market is about two, two and a half trillion. We're making up a good portion of that and continuing to grow each and every day. But Becky, when we think about our business, we think about the long haul and as we come up with strategies to grow, whether it's purchase or refinance, cash out, we, we don't think about the rates. We don't think, is it gonna be a $3 trillion a year market, a 1.5 trillion? We, we kind of just target a normalized market and then we set all of our drivers to grow profitably. And that's what you'll keep seeing us do. So. 35 years in the business, Dan's always said, you know, uh, interest rate is not the factor. Client service, great technology, that's the, those are the ingredients that are going to move you forward. And, and that's what we'll keep doing, and we'll keep grabbing market share. Our goal, 25% market share over the, over the course of the next 10 years. Wow. Hey, hey Dan, we've talked in the past uh, about that technology and yeah. how quick it has been able to really turn around a mortgage. I, I'll admit I've used Rocket Mortgage a few times to refinance over the last seven or eight yeah. years. And it is kind of amazing. The last time I did it, I just did it on a lark. I was, I think, watching the Super Bowl. You guys advertised on it. And I just went on really quickly to see what my new rate would be. And, you know, it came back to me in less than 15 minutes. I was on my way to bed, and I actually got the information before 
I went and got into bed. How, how important is that? And that's been a huge part of what you guys have been talking about, but still the market looks like it's kind of valuing it like a financial company, less like a, like a technology company. Yeah, that, that's sort of one of the big points of contention. We, we think we're a technology company that happens to do home loans. We've said that forever. And uh, there's a lot of years and years of, of effort by hundreds of people in that technology team yeah. to... We're up to 2,500 technologists now. Yeah, I mean, to build what you experienced, Becky, and you're doing mortgages in 3,000 counties and 50 states. Each one's different. Each one's got to be fleshed out, each part of it. It's, it's, once you do the mortgage electronically or digitally, any other kind of transaction is less cumbersome. So we figured that with the public stock, if we go out and acquire some businesses, we can help them really achieve things because the mortgage was the hardest. Yeah, I'll just point out, Becky, uh, this month we'll do 100,000 closings in this country, uh, up from 50,000 or so just four or five short months ago. So when you talk about the technology that we've built and the scale it brings to our platform so we can grow, and as Dan always points out, the next loan on that platform platform is even more profitable than the last loan because the variable costs are so minimal. Um, it really is a fintech company. And to, to Dan's point, if we start with something as challenging as mortgage or real estate, then other uh, uh, things that we may offer like Rocket Auto, uh, we think we can deliver even a better client experience. So we're, we're, a, we're a fintech company. We know that. And we believe over time the market will recognize that as well. It's the speed for sure. But it's also the quality and the, and the clarity and the visibility that a, a customer gets into on their mortgage, which is the biggest financial transaction the average person goes through in their lifetime. So we really decided to focus a lot on that as well. Hopefully you experience some of that too. Congratulations, guys. It's Scott. Uh, I have a question uh, for you, really, Jay. Uh, picking up for, for what Becky referenced earlier, that you're now the largest mortgage originator, I'm wondering if you feel as though we are really in the midst of a sea change where non-banks like yours continue to have a even larger slice of the mortgage business. You're already doing 59% non-banks are in terms of mortgage origination. Uh, how big do you think that that can get? Yeah, so, so as Dan always points out, it's uh, bank versus non-bank. We think well capitalized versus maybe not well capitalized. And I think we're better capitalized than about 95% of the banks out there. And with this new IPO, that strengthens our position even more. Uh, so when it comes down to how big can companies get, I think it's experience, I think it's technology, and I think it's brand. And the Rocket brand is the clear leader in the space. And so uh, our mission right now is to continue to add that capacity. And as, as I referenced before, for us, 25% market share in a normalized market or about $500 billion a year is where we've got our sights set. And I know our 20,000 team members are ready to to make that happen, I think the client's driving this. The client wants a, an incredible experience, and that's what we uh, are here to deliver. Hey, Dan, it's Andrew here. And, uh, hey, Andrew, how are it's, you? It's great to see you, and I just want to say and reiterate what Becky said, and I hope you heard what Jim Cramer said about you being so heroic, uh, and we're just, we're just so glad to see you uh, at doing so well, and, and also just wanted to also comment on the great work that you've done. Uh, on behalf of Detroit. I have a broader economic question, given that we've been talking sure. about jobs and jobless claims today, and uh, given that you've dealt with uh, a city that's had to rebuild itself, we're a country that's going to have to rebuild itself. How do, you, how do you see the economy playing itself out over the next, say, 12 or 24 months? Uh, well, let's see. That's, that's, the, that's the big question. I, I think that uh, you know, we see the same numbers that you guys see every day. I mean, the housing numbers have been strong. 
for both existing and new new housing as well as housing starts. So that's I always think the housing is a leading sort of market metrics when you look at how it's such a big purchase and it drives so many other things. Drives other big ticket purchases by people who just bought homes. So yeah, that's it's definitely drives part of our business of course being the mortgage but drives so much of the economy we really pay attention to it. You know, I would say just in taking a cue off of Dan and the isms and the culture that you guys know is so important to us, um, you'll see it when you believe it. And what Dan has done for the city of Detroit is that focus on creating and believing. And so those same things, I think, exist in America. You talk to homeowners, you talk to people looking to buy a home, there's still a lot of enthusiasm out there. People are recognizing that their lives are changing and they're probably going to spend more time in their homes in the future simply because working from home has been demonstrated. It, it, it works. It can, it can uh, be very, very efficient. But the passion and excitement that we talk to you know, millions of people a month uh, is, is alive and well here. And so I'd say, Dan, the, you know, most uh, Americans are following the same believe and, and uh, you know, it'll be a, a challenging road, but we'll pull through this thing and, and uh, just like Detroit has. I always like listening to Warren Buffett on how the economy is doing. I mean, he always talks about, you know, look at our country in 200 years where it was from you know, an empty field to where it is today. And he believes in the American economy, and I do too, and so do millions of other people. It just seems to always bounce back. Whatever happens, this economy can take it, and it bounces back. We had some big hits here in the last century, right? Ten years ago was a probably the biggest scare in many people's lives, but we, we ended up all right through that as well. So I think that the U.S. economy is the strongest economy in the world, and it always comes back. And it's because of the belief system Jay was just talking about there. We've got to make more people, more politicians, believers, and start talking positive and start showing examples of positive things going on in the economy. Because there are, there, there's, there's some challenging things, but there's some positive things as well. Hey, hey, just speaking of the politicians, Jay, obviously people are watching Washington to find out what happens next with unemployment benefits and uh, the other relief uh, potentially coming out of the next stimulus package. I know that at the end of June, 5% uh, of your mortgage loans were in forbearance. Uh, obviously, what happens next from Washington is going to determine uh, the direction for where things head from here. And I just wonder if you have any insight from there uh, about how things are going and what might come next. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm proud of our group. I think we're running about half the forbearances of the industry right now. That comes down to, as Dan has always pointed out for 35 years, a high quality mortgage origination, which is our, our servicing book, nearly 2 million clients. But it also, it also comes down to client service. As you talk to these consumers who are thinking about forbearance, taking the time to explain to them what exactly that means, what their options are, is critical. So our, our take on this is that many Americans are are testing the waters but are in pretty good shape and so we don't anticipate forbearances rising much now as you pointed out what washington does will have an impact but uh, i think maybe less of an impact at least on our book than than what uh, others are, are are thinking i saw the unemployment uh, numbers i think for last week and if i remember if i saw this properly uh, claims are down so as dan pointed out i think there's some positive things happening in the economy uh, and we feel really good about where our servicing mm -hmm. book is right now Dan, we only have 30 seconds left, but the culture at Quicken has always been an incredible one. Will it change with this IPO? Uh, we sure hope not, and we're going to do everything we can to prevent it from changing. And we're hoping that putting stock in every single person's hands who works at the business puts everybody on the same side of the table, and there, right. there's, there's even more cohesion and, and, and increased 
focus on culture. That's right, Becky. I think uh, getting the right investors is critical. We've explained to them who we are, how we think, our isms in our culture, and I'm, they, they embraced it. So we, we feel we can strengthen the culture as we continue to move forward. You know, culture is just another way of saying who you are and what, you know, and what drives you and how you prioritize things. That's right. Thank you guys for having us this morning. Yeah, we, thank we you. appreciate it. Thank you guys for joining us on this important day. We'll be watching as the stock starts appreciate trading. And please come back and join us again soon. We will for sure. That's a wrap for today's Squawk Pod. Thank you for listening. Our TV broadcast, Squawk Box, is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to get rich slow scheme here. 35 years. years. (laughs) Yep. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.